Shalom everybody. I'm Liel K. Bridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Before we jump in, please note that the following episode contains discussions about fat phobia, ableism, mental illness, suicide, sexual harassment and assault. So please take care as you listen and check out our show notes for support options. Today on the show, I have Zoe Simmons. Zoe is an award-winning journalist, copywriter, author, editor, and speaker with a passion for making a difference. As a journalist, she's been published around the globe, including by news.com.au, the New York Post, Daily Mail, and more. Zoe runs her own copywriting business, has been published in three books, and is writing her own. Zoe has now spoken on podcasts, print, radio, and TV on disability, chronic pain, mental illness, and bushfire recovery. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Well, do you want to start by um, telling us what intersections of identity do you navigate? Um, so I know it might sound strange, but before being invited on this podcast, I didn't really think a whole lot about how intersectionality impacted me, which is weird because I, I literally studied a subject on intersect- intersectional feminism at university. So I, I just I just never considered it would impact me, but um, obviously it does. Um, and I, I did, I'll admit, I did Google before this. Um, and it turns out there's more factors that I even initially realized. Um, really? Yeah. I, I, I didn't realize so many things counted as intersectionality. And then I thought about like, hmm, you know, they do have an impact. So firstly, I'm a woman. I'm also a disabled woman and I come from a relatively poor socioeconomic background. Um, so that's another factor. And I didn't realize this was an example of intersectionality, but um, weight also can be. And like, hell yeah, fat phobia is so rampant, especially in the medical industry. So, you know, all these things combined do have quite an impact on my experience and they all overlap and intertwine. And um, I do obviously have um, elements of privilege, like for example, the fact that I am white, the fact that I am cisgender. Um, but it's just interesting how those things, you know, interlink and, you know, just because you're one privilege doesn't necessarily mean you don't have another disadvantage, for example. And, um, yeah, so it's a bit eye-opening to research. Um, and can you, I guess, explain in an example, perhaps how that affects your life? You know, you said that it does influence your experience. Can you give an example of something that you noticed? I mean, I think the medical industry is probably particularly prominent for me at the moment. Um, you know, I think as women or, you know, people with uteruses generally, um, you're more likely to not be listened to. Um, the conditions that primarily affect us, like, for example, um, endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue, um, ME, all those things, um, you know, are quite often dismissed and those things aren't often as researched. And um, even in other conditions, it's often only really men's experiences that are researched and documented. So that's definitely impactful. Sounds like it is all kind of, you know, interrelated for you as well. Yeah. I mean, gosh, the medical industry is not as good as I thought it was before I had to use it, I guess. Um, Like I remember the first time I went to a doctor for help with my pain and um, she was like, oh, it's dairy. And I was like, no, it's not. And she was like, yeah, it's dairy and insisted. And I was like, it's not because I am vegan and I don't eat dairy and I haven't for a couple of years now. So, you know, it's not that. And then she's like, oh, it's your weight. And like these comments without 
doing any tests, without talking to me for more than a couple of minutes. It's just, I, I just can't believe things like this happen so much. And like, that's a tame example compared to what other people experience. I'm sort of wondering when, I mean, you said that you've researched coming up to our conversation, but you told me that you've only realized you had a disability about a year ago, even though you've been living with it for quite a while. Can you tell us how that happened? And also, how did that kind of impact your life? What changed for you when you realized you did have a disability? Um, Well, technically, I've been disabled my whole life thanks to bipolar and anxiety, but um, I didn't realize those were mental illnesses. Um, I mean, I started experiencing chronic pain, although I didn't realize it was aspects of chronic pain back then. Um, But I remember being as early as, as young as 12 and, you know, experiencing ridiculously painful periods that, you know, I, I remember, you know, not being able to run in PE and then being dismissed and told, you know, you're just trying to get out of PE and, you know, or just dismissing you and not just go on the pill and like, it's fine, it's normal. And it wasn't until I was um, in my early 20s when I broke my wrist and I realized that my abdominal pain hurt more than a broken bone. So I was like, mm, no, that's that's definitely not normal. Yeah. Um, you know, then all these other symptoms began to emerge. My pain became constant regardless of my period. Um, it's agonizing abdominal pain that feels like you're being stabbed and shot, like someone's pouring acid in there. Not, not pleasant. Um, and, you know, a lot of bone pain, nerve pain, extreme fatigue, all these things that you know, I never considered that what I was experiencing could be disability because I'd never really seen it represented. Um, You know, we kind of only see disability in the media as either the tragic, the tragic disabled life or the super fit Paralympian. And that's just not reflective of most people's experiences. Even though I had multiple disabilities at this point, I was like, no, I'm not disabled. I'm just, and you know, that's internalized ableism talking. Um, Then I kind of realized that it's okay to identify as disabled like it's not a dirty word it's not a bad thing and like I saw the impact it had on like my jobs my relationships my mobility like I now often need to use a walking stick or a wheelchair and sometimes just walking to my lounge room exhausts me and it's like how are those things not a disability (laughs) um yeah so what happened as you kind of said I can identify as a disabled person how did that change things for you? I mean, the point in time that I actually kind of fully clicked that I was disabled was pretty traumatic. I just had my um, second surgery looking for endometriosis and they still couldn't find it. You know, I felt so lost and, you know, like what is wrong with me? And um, the disability community kind of helped me see that I'm valid even without a diagnosis like your symptoms alone are valid enough like um it was it was pretty heartbreaking I guess to realize um not necessarily you know realizing I'm disabled but realizing I've been battling with these things for so long and not recognizing their impact on me um but it is also a good thing because it helps me to advocate for myself it helped me to realize that the system is not on your side generally speaking um You know, you do have to fight to get answers. You do have to fight to be heard. And, um, you know, it spurred me into advocacy and it like being disabled also helped me feel more comfortable in, you know, recognizing my symptoms and that, yes, they do impact my world. I'm not just, you know, making up excuses, um, but also like recognizing I was disabled also meant that I could ask for accessibility because I didn't realize I could do that. Um, 
it also helped me find a sense of pride. Like I, I think that's pretty pretty badass, you know, to experience all these horrible things, but then still follow your dreams. And not that you have to do anything to be productive to have value, but just you know that you can still achieve things. It's not, you know, this horrible barrier necessarily. Um, you can still live a beautiful life. Um, yeah. That's a huge thing. I think, you know, so many people feel uh, so many either non-disabled people or people that have just been diagnosed or just acquired a disability that don't even identify with that word yet feel that life isn't worth living if you have a disability or life isn't worth living if you don't have your full mobility or if you are in pain. Like it just seems like this black or white kind of situation, like unless you're fully capable of like running a marathon then why would you even get up in the morning which is so ridiculous like so many of us live with disabilities and don't do things like marathons or climbing the Everest or whatever and we still have a wonderful life that's really meaningful and just fantastic so but I'm also so sorry to hear about the trauma and I think it's so important to acknowledge that trauma and I guess it brings me to my question about the medical model because we versus the social model of disability because obviously the medical system that we have is based on the medical model of disability so what i mean by that is that you know most medical professionals come in and that all their learning is about how to fix whatever is wrong with our bodies whatever it is a broken bone our brain whatever Uh, versus the social model of disability that obviously centers the disabling part on society so um rather than our bodies or our minds I know that it's a recent journey for you, but have you had time to kind of ponder whether you identify more with the medical model of disability versus the social model? Um, I actually have a little bit. One of the big factors in helping me realize I was disabled was reading, um, you know, articles and books written by other disabled writers. Like I read Growing Up Disabled in Australia and I remember just reading the foreword by, I'm pretty sure Carly Finley wrote the foreword. Um, but I just, you know, read that and was like, oh, my gosh, that is that is spot on. Um, you know, the medical industry sees us as the problem and that's pretty awful. Like, yes, there are some things that need to be, you know, treated, but seeing us as the problem kind of casts the blame on us. And it's like a lot of our conditions don't have a cure. Like, it's just, it's just as is. Like, are you just going to tell us we're permanently broken? Like, n- no. And a lot of the barriers we experience – because of society so can i ask about your mental illness that you describe and i guess the way that you see the social model of disability how that relates to your mental illness or inaccessibility like how does that kind of you know what is inaccessible do you think in society for you as a person with a mental illness and what is accessible um yeah i mean honestly though i do feel like my physical disabilities kind of impact me more when it comes to accessibility. Um, So there are a lot of things that are really inaccessible. I mean, from a mental health perspective, I think it's just the assumption that you don't have mental illness, that you don't have anxiety. And like, I have a complex mental illness and I'm, I'm pretty sure I also have PTSD. And like, you know, these things are not considered like, you know, requiring an in-person event or something where you have to all stand up and talk like one if you can't stand up that's a ridiculous thing to ask people and two um you know that is really anxiety inducing it's you know we often just expected to oh just move past it it's just it's just in your head and like 
it is in your head, but that doesn't make it any less real. Um, it is still impacting you and it's still valid. Um, yeah. In terms of physical inaccessibility, oh my gosh, um, I'm pretty new to being a wheelchair user. Um, I use it part-time. I have a manual chair, um, but I found it so hard to like navigate society, like things you wouldn't even think of when you're able-bodied, like being able to get into a physical location or like, you know, the slopes on a footpath, a footpath ending, like little lips that connect the road and the footpath. And if they're too big, you like hit it like a rock. Pretty scary. And like trying to access public transport in particular is not great. I, I used a wheelchair for the first time on a train not too long ago, and it was genuinely terrifying. Like there was no signage on what do. Um, I went to like the little part of the station that had a little disability sticker and I thought, you know, that's where I should go. Nope. But they don't have that information anywhere. Um, you know, they, I think they, they said to go to a particular part of the carriage, but then I went to that part and no one was there. Um, and anyway, I tried to end up getting in the chair and I forgot, uh, sorry, I tried to get in the train with my chair and I forgot that I have little front wheels and I got stuck in like the gap between the train and the chair. And that was so scary. I was just convinced I was going to get sucked through and, and die. And like, you know, I'm on an angle and other people in the train um, came and moved me, which was really humiliating. And, you know, I was crying because I was just, I don't know, just fear of being crushed by a train took hold and, you know, being seen, like thinking, you know, anxiety coming in, like, oh, no, people are watching and stuff like that. It's just just really horrible and there are so many things that are inaccessible like so much it is very overwhelming and something that a lot of people don't really think about until they actually are in that chair quite literally um so can you tell us about what you love doing most what are you into at the moment so i have a lot of different i guess hats creative wise i've worked with like a lot of really cool small businesses but also some big organizations I'm really proud of, so I'm going to name drop. <laughs> um, like Women with Disabilities Australia and like the Youth Disability Advocacy Service, the higher up, like just amazing organizations. And, you know, I'm also a journalist, so I freelance for a lot of different publications and organizations. Um, I do quite often write about my own experiences, um, but I do also write articles about other people's stories to, I guess, help people feel heard and share I guess, a bit more diversity in the media. Um, I, I also like to um, share fundraisers in my stories. So I often help people raise money that are in vulnerable situations. Um, you know, I, I speak sometimes, like I'm, I've spoken at the National Young Writers Festival. Um, I'd love to do more. I've started doing a little bit of lived experience work. Like I've just, I'm about to start a role as a lived experience advisor with the Royal Children's Hospital, but um, fantastic. And congratulations on all your publications and all the you know speaking gigs that you're getting and writing and sharing experiences that's fantastic and you're also writing your own book can you just tell us about it give us the elevator pitch yeah absolutely so um after experiencing the black summer bushfires i went back home to batemans bay and um on new year's eve 2019 and um unfortunately got caught in the bushfires and um you know i just remember hearing all these stories that just weren't being captured and it just wasn't enough like the thousand word articles so I decided to write a story and like there's all these I there's so many things that people just don't know about a bushfire and like its impacts and its trauma and like how severe these things are like um for example one of the people in my book is um a father that um a 70 year old that 
had bombs the size of fire trucks landing all around him, like fire bombs, um, like just landing everywhere. And, you know, his daughter didn't know he was alive and thought he had died in it because the phone reception cut out. It's just like, what? Um, and we have been forgotten. So that's also something I'm going to be talking about in my book and the impacts of being forgotten because as soon as COVID came in, no one cared. Um, even now, like I can't get a story accepted about the bushfires, which is so disheartening because people are still homeless. People are still struggling so much. Um, so my book is about that as well as my own experiences um, in the bushfires, my emotions, um, being a disabled journalist, uh, my own trauma of the day, which was not great. Um, it's very hard to write a book, especially when you are trying to earn money to pay for all the expensive medical stuff and, you know, dealing with stu- uh, medical stuff and then, you know, needing to put your energy into stuff that pays your bills and you, know, you can't you can't put your energy into your projects. Um. And in order to pay the bills, you run your own business. Can you, and you talked about what you do in the business, but can you tell us about why you started your own business? I mean, you were working for other people. What happened? What was it about the kind of traditional workplace that was inaccessible to you? I mean, there were a lot of factors. Um, At that stage, I didn't fully realise I was disabled and, like, I I didn't know accessibility applied to me, so I didn't ask for the things. Um, But there were some things that I was asking for that I knew helped, like, for example, remote work. And I remember that, um, you know, I was like... It, it takes so much energy to commute to a workplace, to be in a physical location. You, you can't manage your pain as much. It makes it worse. It makes your fatigue worse. It's just all around not great for disabled people. Um, and I remember them saying like, oh, if I'm in pain, I, I can't come to the office. And they're like, oh, no, you have to. But if you're in pain, don't come. I'm like, well, I'm in pain all the time. So, um, you know, there was a lot of that. I just didn't feel like I would be able to grow as much there and I wanted to be able to look after myself first I wanted to be able to manage my appointments and my symptoms and not feel bad for asking for time off or resting or you know working how works best for me like from my lounge or the lap desk or you know in bed or in my pajamas and ways that I can manage my pain what happens it's made me so much more productive but you recently wrote a piece in Body and Soul called it's complicated a love letter to my mobility aids which I love that piece by the way I guess the what you're talking about in that piece is the changing relationships that you've had with your mobility aids, how you've basically transformed how you feel and view the mobility aids in your life. Um, And it ends with great love. And I would really love to hear kind of from you about how you've made that transition, because you might know that I work as a provisional psychologist and I mainly work with people that have disabilities or chronic health conditions. And so many people struggle with the idea even of using a mobility aid. Um, People that are newly diagnosed or even people that have lived with disabilities their entire life. Um, So how did you make that transition? Uh, (laughs) With great difficulty, um, to be perfectly honest, because there is so much stigma around mobility aids. And it was really hard. I remember wanting to use mobility aids for such a long time and, you know, trying to hold yourself to able to stand is like, you could walk around the gallery and stand for an hour and walk around Melbourne. That's fine. Um, no, it wasn't fine. <laughs> you know, it would often lead to a flare and making it worse. And, you know, you'd often think to yourself, oh, you, you push through, like you're not disabled enough, but, you know, pushing through only makes it worse. 
Um, and I vividly remember the day I used mobility aid for the first time. I was seeing a gallery with a friend and I was just in so much pain. I felt like I was going to burst into tears with every step. It was just agony everywhere. Um, and, you know, I asked for the first time, you know, do you have any mobility aids for hire? And anyway, so I ended up using a wheelchair for the first time and it was such an emotional experience because it helped me so much. Like I, I couldn't believe I could just exist without exasperated pain as a result of my movement. Like I was still in pain, but it wasn't as bad. And, you know, I could just enjoy the, sh the gallery. I didn't have to leave early because of my pain. And I almost cried. That's how much it made an impact to me. And, you know, I remember wanting to use one again and um, trialing different ones. And, you know, even my medical team, like, oh, why do you want to do that? It's like, I don't know, moving easier. That sounds nice. Um, so I eventually mustered up the courage to get a walking stick and eventually my own wheelchair. And um, it is still very hard. I'm still very nervous using it, like, um, you know, around people that haven't seen me in a wheelchair before. Uh, I'm going to an event tonight where I'm going to be using a chair for the first time around some people. And I am so, 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 so terrified of, you know, their judgment and their internalized stigma and ableism. So can you tonight you're going to this event what do you do I mean how do you deal with that first moment with that anxiety and worry about what they're gonna think what what they're gonna do all of that how do you deal with that oh I'm so anxious um but my my first uh step was mentioning it I mean I was so anxious about this I literally spoke to my psychologist for like half an hour about it like ah um but uh just, you know, oh, hey, by the way, um, I may need to bring my wheelchair. So, you know, um, I am still so nervous though. Um, also about like, is is the location accessible? I don't know. Like, um, so how I'm going to deal with that is, I guess, just use the mobility aid, even though I feel so anxious, I feel so imposter syndrome-y, you know, just being like, no, I do need this. Don't let that little inner ableism voice tell you that you don't because you do. I really like that. I think that distinction between the inner voice that is internalized ableism that we all get in society because ableism is everywhere. So we all internalize these ideas, even if we don't realize them. And then being able to distinguish between, okay, that's my internalized ableism voice talking right now versus this is what my body is telling me right now. And I'm going to listen to my body versus my internalized ableism voice and just let it be there. Absolutely. And it's just wild how pervasive the ableism is. Like I posted a picture of myself in a chair for the first time. And like, that was such a happy, joyful moment for me. Like, yes, freedom, woohoo, life-changing. And then someone messaged me saying like, oh, it made me so sad to see you in that chair. Just, just so sad. It's like, why? I'm not sad. I'm very happy. I'm, I'm sad about the slopes and the fact that I can't afford a good chair, but you know, pretty good otherwise. It's just. I got a very similar reaction, even not even to using mobility aids, just to posting the first photo that I ever posted with my legs kind of exposed. And I got these reactions of like, why are you doing that? You know, aren't you worried about what people are going to say? Um, which was exactly the opposite to what I was feeling. I was feeling such a big relief. It was like a massive, like a mountain off my shoulders that I don't have to hide anymore. That's it. Like, even if you don't show these things, you're still experiencing them and people are still experiencing them. So we have to share. Like how else will you know that other people have these other experiences and these barriers that we need to address if we don't talk about it and share about it? And also, you know, pride in disability. 
Well, it's exactly the opposite. I think pride is almost like the opposite of shame. And when we hide or we feel like we have to hide, there's like shame on top of our experience that we're going to be having anyway. So I'll have a pain or fatigue or whatever it is, symptoms that I've got. And then if I feel shame about it, it's just creates so much more suffering. And then replacing that shame with pride just makes things so much easier because you can actually feel allowed to use a mobility aid or feel allowed to sit down on the train of um, so feeling allowed to do those things is such a big relief now so all those experiences that we're talking about all the recent works that you've had is all created here in melbourne in arm can you but you're not from here originally so can you tell us about why you moved where you moved from a little bit if you want um, but why you moved and how was that transition because I mean moving is a big thing for anyone let alone someone that experiences the things that you are experiencing um well so I was born in uh Campbelltown but when I was around 10 or so we moved to the south coast of New South Wales um you know I then moved for uni um to Wollongong a bit later on um and you know I moved to Melbourne in 2018 and, you know, 2017, 2018 were honestly really not a great year for me. Um, bit of a trigger warning here, I guess, for mental health and um, suicide. Um, but I was just really not in a good place. Like I was working a job that was so exhausting with like, it was like two hours of travel every day and it was full-time hours. And like they expected you to do like extra hours as well, unpaid. And it was just so exhausting and I remember coming home every day and just sobbing about how miserable I was and then um, some other not-so-great things happened. Um, like my, uh, I was living with my nan briefly um, who has quite bad dementia um, and then uh, a long-term relationship broke up, pets died, um, I didn't have anywhere stable to live so I was kind of couch surfing. Um, I was drinking way too much. Um, from being honest, I think at one stage it was almost every day and I was just so sad. I just, I just wanted the pain to end. Um, so, you know, I knew I needed to change something, especially because I, uh, you know, uh, well, <clears throat> I tried to take my life. I was quite close. And in the last second I stopped because I got, I felt guilty about the person who had find my body. <laughs> I felt too guilty and, you know, too guilty about making my mom cry. So I didn't, but I knew I obviously needed to change. I don't think I would be here if I hadn't. So I just decided to have fresh break. So I packed up everything I owned into my little Toyota Corolla, drove 10 hours by myself and moved into a friend's spare room. Um, eventually got my own place, but. I definitely think doing that saved my life and also a lot of great experiences and things that I wouldn't have learnt or done if I hadn't have made that move. Thank you so much for sharing, Zoe, and I appreciate your honesty and how hard it is to share this. But I'm, I'm so grateful that you're sharing because it's such an important experience to talk about. Uh, you know, this not talking about it literally kills people. And, you know, not talking about it, as we said, you know, makes you feel like it's shameful. And it's it's not. It is okay to not be okay. It is not your fault. And, you know, we don't really address that in our society. 
um, you know, you're just told to get over it or, you know, stop being an attention seeker. It's like, well, I would like medical attention. Does that count? So there's a lot of really unhelpful responses to people sharing how much they're struggling. I guess when you were feeling like that, but was there anyone in particular or anything in particular that you found really helpful or something that you think this is how someone can help? I mean, I think the most important thing, whether it's mental illness or chronic illness or disability or really anything that impacts you, like just believe them. Um, it's really hard to talk about it, especially, um, you know, I remember telling a family member that I had bipolar and they were they were not pleased. They were basically, you know, ashamed of me. Like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience. And that's definitely not how you support someone with mental illness. Um, you know, even small things can help so much, like from a mental illness perspective, like, you know, just reminding you that you are loved, that you are not a burden, that the, the nasty voices in your mind are not accurate. Like all those things, just reminding you that you are valued, you are loved, you are worthy, and you have a place in this world you know I mean practical things like you know for example helping cleaning helping do errands just helping do basic stuff it's so much harder when you experience disability um you know just imagine what it'd be like if you were experiencing that and what would you want yeah believing is such a big thing that your your point about being believed brings me to my experience of as a disabled girl and a teenager, I experienced quite a lot of sexual harassment and also sexual assault. And I wasn't believed. One experience that I've had, I was 14 and I was walking one day from, I was leaving um, a clinic and a taxi driver approached me and started making very inappropriate comments about my body and about sex. Um, and he was getting closer to me and approaching me and I was on crutches I had a massive brace on my leg it wasn't like a situation where I could run anywhere uh, there was no one else around it was empty street in a really quiet town where we were living and I was just imagining how he was going to just shove me in the taxi and just drive and no one would know or my house was down the road I was just I knew that if I'd crossed the road to my house he would just I could just imagine him following me Luckily, it didn't happen beyond that. I managed to walk over to a neighbor's house and he eventually left. But I am still carrying that trauma um, until this day. And I guess being in that position where I couldn't run away, I couldn't defend myself. I was on crutches and he knew that. And I could see in his eyes and in the way that he was talking to me that he knew that and he was targeting me for that reason. Um, it was terrifying. And still to this day, when I walk down the street and I, I'm limping, I think, who is around? Who is watching me? And if I'm limping, are they they're going to target me? And yeah, some other experiences of being sexually assaulted, which I'm not going to share the details of, but uh, what is important for me to share is that I wasn't believed. Um, and it was in a, I was assaulted by a doctor who was examining me for my disability. So if I didn't have a disability, I wouldn't have even been in that room. So 
yeah thank you for listening to my story i guess the question that i wanted to ask you zoe without going into any details at all from your experience and what your perspective what do you think we can do to make the world a safer place for disabled girls and women Uh, i mean firstly i just want to say i'm so sorry you experienced that and honestly i have had this conversation with so many uh, you know people and I, i haven't spoken to a single woman who has not experienced some form of harassment or assault and obviously when you have other aspects of intersectionality like you know disability or race or you know lgbtqia plus people it only makes it you know more so it's it's i think it's a lot more prominent than what statistics say like they only say that one in four women have been (laughs) sexually harassed like that is that is not accurate. I would. Well, absolutely. Sorry. And I was just going to say my experiences are not counted in any statistics because no one recorded that experience. So, um, you know, even before I realized I was disabled, I experienced things um, like I remember when I was 14 and I was wearing my favorite skirt and a group of older men drove past and there were, you know, wolf whistling and making comments. And I was just sitting alone at a bus station with, you know, like no one else around. Like I who knows what they could have done and I didn't even recognize at the time and my 14 year old brain was like oh thanks for the compliment which now I'm like that is disgusting you were adult men preying on a child it's disgusting anyway no one should be doing that no matter how old those men were and no matter how old you were that's unacceptable behavior but that's the message that we get told as girls And then we internalize that is that, you know, any attention is good attention. So if someone like grabs you in the middle of a nightclub, you know, that means that you're valuable. Yeah. Oh, you're wanted. You know, you can do all the things to protect yourself and you can still get sexually assaulted and harassed. And the fact that most of these things actually happen, you know, in the home. And um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm open to talking about this necessarily publicly but I have experienced it unfortunately more than once um it's just really terrifying how pervasive it is and you know I often use my walking stick and I wonder if you know that makes me stand out to predators but in my brain I'm also like well if someone attacks me I have a stick to hit them with so that's a pro (laughs) (laughs) I think that all the time about my walking stick I'm like great weapon um honestly I don't know what to do that could help it but I think at least talking about it and recognizing this is a bigger problem than what we think it is absolutely thank you so much for sharing Zoe and I am also sorry so sorry to hear about your experiences they are horrific and no one should ever experience those traumas and I think you know talking about these attitudes and things that contribute to this is very important like you know tackling misogyny and you know not just you know the thing like not all men but no not all men obviously but enough that's a very 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 big problem and like if you're not harassing or assaulting people that's 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 great that that shouldn't be applauded that should just be being a human but you know you have to recognize that you're a part of a structure that does you know have these impacts agree now with all of that i'm so i just feel so enriched by our conversation and i would really love to hear from you zoe about what does intersectionality mean to you so i guess intersectionality as i said it's not something i necessarily considered impacted me and i think that's something that a lot of people probably experience like you don't realize 
that you're part of these things. And I kind of think that might be intentional because it's the privileged parties who benefit from that. Um, like there's a lot of benefits to recognizing your intersectionality and the things that impact you and, you know, the structures that all combine together to create all these different problems. Um, and if we don't realize that we can't change it. So, um, you know, even just talking about it and thinking about it and recognizing it has such huge impacts and, you know, like the fact that I didn't realize I was disabled for so long, despite having it my whole life and being affected by it my whole life, you know, you really don't think about it until someone unlocks that box and you're like, oh. Oh, before we go, can you share where can people find you? Well, I have a website which lists all my information and the work I've done. Um, so that's www.zoesimmons.com.au. Um, I'm also on Twitter at It Begins With Z. I'm on Instagram at Something Beginning With Z. Um, and I have Facebook, which is, I think, Zoe Simmons Journalist and LinkedIn. So like any of those work. But um, if you just Google Zoe Simmons Journalist, I should come up or at least my website should. Thank you, Zoe. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can just go down and click on them right now and find you, support your work and get in touch. Thank you so much, Zoe, for coming to Unmarginalized. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Ooh, thank you. Before we go, a grateful thanks to the City of Melbourne Arts Grant 2022 for supporting this episode and the entire second season of the Unmarginalized podcast. I would also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced, the Bunarang people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you enjoyed or learned something from the episode, please rate, review and share it with a curious person in your life.